Hello, Real Life Families. Pastor Tim with you again today and excited to be able to share with you just some more about our Real Life Family as we are on a journey together, doing life together, serving God and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about our church family and what, you know, how, how we are meant to, to do life together. And we started with the five purposes of the church, which is worship, uh, to put God first in our lives, um, discipleship, becoming like Jesus. So are we still becoming like Jesus? Is, are you still allowing God to work on you and work through you? Uh, another one of those purposes is ministry. Am I serving the body of Christ? Am I using what God has given me, the gifts that God's given me, to share those with others, to build others up? And fellowship. Fellowship is really relationships, right? Am I doing life with others or am I isolated, just trying to make it through life on my own? God wants us to do life together. And then finally, evangelism. We have good news to share and we need to be sharing that good news with this world, with this fallen world. Jesus has placed us uh, right where we are to be the bearers of good news, to bring life to people, hope to people, freedom to people. And, and so that's, that's how we need to view our life. We are all missionaries. We are all sent. We all have a message to give. And it is how good God is, how much God loves us, what God has done for us, and he can do it for you too. So these are really the purposes of the church. When I say the church, though, remember, I'm not talking about you know, a building uh, or a structure. I'm talking about people, me and you. This is my purpose in life in God, is to put God first, to become like Jesus, to give the gifts that God has given to me, to the body of Christ, um, and to, to do life with you, to do life with other believers, and to share good news to this world. So that's all of our shared common purposes, right? And then we also talk about the structure of the church, how God has blessed us with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to help equip all of us, the body of Christ, to, so that we will be fully mature and access all the fullness of Christ, so that we can grow into all for which Christ Jesus has accomplished for us. So we have these appointed, anointed um, callings on individuals that Christ appoints to bless the church. And within the local church, there's pastors, there's elders, there's deacons, there's others who God has just given different gifts to for the sake of the body. And the scriptures teach us that every single one of us has a role. Every one of us has a part. Every one of us has gifts that God has given for the benefit of the whole. And so the, the challenge really is as a family, as a church family, how do we um, uh, just structure that and access that in each and every one of us so that we are all on the same page and we're all helping and serving and loving one another to build each other up. So we talked about that and the joy of putting into place last week 25 deacons in our church to help love the church, to help support the family. And those deacons will be praying for each one of our members that are assigned to them. They'll be connecting with you uh, and they'll be praying for you and getting to know you and also being a liaison so that we know what's going on in your life. If you're going through a hard time or you have a crisis in your life or you have something great that's happening, uh, we just wanna better strengthen our whole family, every single member, that none of us are alone, 
that I don't want to see anyone unloved, uncared for, unprayed for. I want every one of our family members to be prayed for, cared for, known, encouraged, loved, and, uh, and each one of our members to be doing the same thing for, for each and every one of us. So that's what we were talking about the last couple of weeks. Today, I want to talk about just a healthy family, a healthy church family. What does that look like? So as I walk through these uh, different points, I just have three points I want to make. I'm sure there's many more we could do, but we'll just have time for three today. Um, what does a healthy church family look like? I'm going to be using my own family as kind of an example because we can all relate to our natural families. And then we need to look at what's healthy in our natural families and project them onto what our church family uh, would look like too for a healthy church family. So we believe, as our real name says, this is real life, right? This is not religion life. We're not doing religion life together. We are doing real life together. Now, when you introduce real life, then you're introducing real problems. <laughs> because we're all real people. We have real problems. But in the midst of that, we serve a real God who has called us to live together as a family. And he has real answers for each and every one of us. He's calling us to do this thing together. So we're not doing religion. We're doing life. And it's real. And it's raw. And sometimes we hurt each other. Sometimes we uh, rub each other wrong. And sometimes we let each other down. But we don't give up. We don't just get offended and, and walk away or run away. We want to be a healthy church family. Not a perfect church family. There isn't one. There is no perfect church family. There's no perfect family, right? In your family, I'm sure there's times in your family where you've looked at things and said, wow, this is a mess, <laughs> right? Oh, this should not be this way. Oh man, what happened? What's going on? How do we get this, you know, this, this problem figured out? And that's the same with the church family. Just like in a real family, we can't give up on each other. Now, I know some families have given up on each other, but that's not a healthy family. A healthy family doesn't give up on each other, right? A healthy family, you know, works it out. And so that's what this message is about today is how can we be a healthy church family? And I want to commend all of us for already doing these things, but I want to champion them even more to make sure that all new family members understand that we're not going to live uh, life like a dysfunctional family. We are going to live life like God has designed it to be, and he's given us you know, instructions on how to have a healthy family together. So the first one is simply this. A healthy church family communicates, communicates well. I don't know about your family, uh, but in our family, you know, we have five children and, well, four of them are away from home right now. Uh, we have our, our oldest who is living in Saginaw, just got married and teaching now, Remington. She's teaching in, in, a, in a school and uh, she's not that far away. And then our oldest son, Peyton, he lives in Illinois. He's going to college there, working on a master's degree at uh, Olivet Nazarene University. And then we have our daughter, Tori, who lives in North Carolina. She's going to school down there. So she's a long ways away. And then we have our son, Chase, who's going to college. He's a sophomore at Spring Arbor. And uh, he's running there and studying there. And then we have Eli, who's still at home in eighth grade. So uh, we've gone through a lot of transitions just in the last couple of years. And we've had to really work hard at still communicating. So at least once a week, 
we're checking in with our kids. You know, we're on the phone or Remton might stop by because she's closer, but the other ones, you know, we're calling them or finding out what's going on and we're trying to stay connected, right? In our church family, we need to stay connected. We need to communicate. We need to value our relationships with one another so that we stay in contact and we share life together. Uh, I think of our conversations sometimes um, as family, as our family, when we're talking with our kids, sometimes our conversations are really mundane and just ordinary. What'd you do today? How's it going? How are classes? You know, what, what's happening now? But other times, there's times when we are um, giving advice because there's, a, there's a, a situation in their life or we're encouraging them because they're down about something. Or um, we're celebrating with them because of some great accomplishment. But anytime there is something serious that happens or is important, really important in their life, we know about it immediately. We have a relationship, obviously, with our children so that if there's anything going on like that, that they would tell us right away so that we can support them. We can help them if we can. We can give them advice or or, uh, help immediately, right? So that's what we need as a church family. We need to have enough communication with one another. We need to have enough relationship and and, uh, just continual communication so that we're actually doing life together. And when there's something that comes up in your life, we we need to know immediately. Why? Why? Because we're family. Because we're building a family. And family is there for each other, and we need to support each other. We don't want anybody going through a hard time or having a difficulty or something really important happens, and no one's there to celebrate or no one's there with them to mourn or no one's there with them to help them in that time of need. And so a healthy family communicates well together. As a real-life family, we need to have a circle of close relationships like this. You need to develop that. And this only happens when you value or place a high value on relationships. And uh, so we need to be able to do this regularly. And sometimes in our church family, just sharing life together, it's going to be mundane. It's going to be just boring, ordinary conversations about just the details of our day. But there's going to be other times when we're, we're talking and we're developing these relationships where we need advice or we need support or we need some extra prayer, or we're going through a hard time and uh, it's a crisis, or something great's going on and someone's there to celebrate with us. This is what it's all about, developing a church family. So what I wanna encourage you to do is is to really dive into relationship building in our church family and to value people. You can't know everybody, I can't know everybody in our church. I mean, I try to know everybody at least on a surface level, but as a pastor, there's no way I can relate to everybody this way in the church. It's too big, right? So we all need to take responsibility to create a circle of these types of relationships within our church family. That there's a, there's a, uh, a team, there's a, a group, there's a, uh, you know, friendships and relationships that you have that you're sharing your life with. And so one of the reasons why we develop our deacon ministry is to help build this structure uh, intentionally so that we can make sure every single one of us is connected to the family, is communicating and is loved and cared for and all of those things, okay? And so whenever anything's going on in your life, um, 
communicate that in the future to your deacon and to those around you so we can build each other, support each other, uh, and do life together. That's what we're called to do. So I'm asking for every single one of our family members to communicate, especially in the future when we all have a deacon, to communicate any crisis, anything that's of, of great importance to your life, to immediately contact uh, your deacon so that we know how to pray for you and encourage you. And if we can help, we will we'll be there to help you. That's the goal, to build a strong, healthy family. Just like in your natural family, uh, there's constant communication going on, hopefully. Uh, and if there isn't, there should be healthy communication going on. You should know what's going on in your family. You should be talking about life together, sharing life together. So it should be in our spiritual family. We're not just doing a religion. We're not just showing up on a Sunday morning and punching the religious clock and doing our duty and then going on and trying to live the rest of our life on our own Monday through Saturday. We are a family. We are sharing life together. And there needs to be people in your life that you're talking to and sharing with throughout that week. That's why we have life groups. So the second one, well, first of all, I want to read this scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Um, this is written, I believe, by Paul to the believers in Thessalonica. And on behalf of him and the other, uh, the other people that are on his team, he says this, because we loved you so much. Do you see the context? Because we, we loved you so much. And in our family, we're looking to get better at loving each other. Right? Jesus says, it's by this, your love for one another, that the world will know you are my disciple. Because that's what's important to Jesus, is that we love each other like a family. And so the, Paul says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives, our lives as well. And so Paul's like, we, we were personal with you. We shared our lives with you. You know me. We were together. We've been together. We've spent time together. We shared meals together. We talked about our lives together. We weren't just preaching at you, right? Paul says, but we loved you so much. We just, we shared our life with you. And that is the heartbeat of God for his family. Remember, we are his family. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are his body. He's called us together to be in this journey together. And so that's his desire. Jesus' desire for our family is that we love each other and we share our lives with each other, which leads to uh, my second point, which almost is the same thing. And that is a healthy church family congregates or gathers Right, And so I cannot stress this enough how important it is for all of us to make it a priority to keep gathering physically together as a spiritual family on Sunday mornings and in life groups. Okay, On Sunday mornings, we're worshiping God. We're building each other up. We're encouraging people. We're inviting others to come to church. We're leading people to Christ. There's a lot of things going on on Sunday mornings. But in a life group, it's even more personal. It's a smaller setting. You're building relationships. You're talking about your life. You're sharing your, your heart. Um, you're praying for one another. Uh, and you're just building healthy relationships. And so one of the things that Amy and I have instilled in our kids throughout their upbringing, from, from when they were very little all the way up, we, had a, we have and we have shared a vision with our kids of the future family that we want to be. 
And part of that has been that we will always gather together. I have like, if you want to call it brainwash or whatever, but really instill this value in my kids that listen, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, wherever you guys live, wherever God takes you, we are always going to do everything we can to gather together for these special holiday seasons. That's our vision for our family. We want everyone together. And I know that's a common, a common feeling and vision for all of our families. I know that. But we have really drilled that into our kids. Why? Because it's important that we physically spend time together, gather together, love each other. We need to be around each other. But in addition to that, you know, we are we're even trying to uh, coordinate uh, a spring break kind of vacation in Florida every year. We've been doing that for many years and we're still trying to work out that, how to do that with grown kids. Um, and as they start to get married and start, who knows where they'll live, you know, we are going to still try to coordinate those kinds of things just to keep us together. One of my favorite things that I've put in, in, into place is a yearly golf outing with my boys and some of my nephews and friends. And that's just another thing that I've done just on purpose to say, this is fun, this is great, but it's also gathering together, spending time together on purpose, getting it on people's calendars, you know? Now, when the kids are growing up, we gather at the table, don't we? Um, I hope. <laughs> I know it's a different world than it was 40 years ago, but raising our kids, you know, we have tried to gather around the dinner table, to just gather together and share life together. How's it going? How is your day? Tell us a highlight of your day. How are classes going? Who's your best friend right now? You know, what's, what's happening? Tell us what's going on. And so over the dinner table, you know, we're gathering, we're sharing life, we're updating each other, we're building relationships, right? Now, this is a healthy family in the natural sense. And, you know, we're, we're doing life in real time. We're processing things in real time. Sometimes we will catch something, a little attitude or a little problem. And we, because it's in real time, we can nurture it or process it or correct it right away because it's current, right? And it doesn't get loose and just build. And now in a healthy church family, we need to have relationships like that where we're around each other enough, where there's an awareness of, of what's going on and we're processing life together in real time, in real time. That we have little tiny corrections all the time, little tiny encouragements when we need it. That there's people close to us and around us frequently enough, the proximity of these relationships enough, where there's a nurturing and a continual uh, processing of things in a healthy way um, all the time. It's kind of like driving a car. You know, when you first start to drive, you make big, quick adjustments and realize, whoa, I almost went off the road. Whoa, I don't have to turn the wheel that fast. But then as you get older and more experienced, you're just always tweaking the wheel, but you don't even really realize it because it's just become so natural that you're just constantly making subtle adjustments, subtle adjustments. That's how you drive. You don't just hold the wheel stiff and straight because the road isn't always going to go straight. There's always a constant flow in our relationships in life. We need this constant um, uh, interaction with others just to keep our spirits up, to keep our minds on the right things, to bring us back into the right place, uh, to give us encouragement, to give that encouragement. So we need to be together. Those things happen together in relationships with each other.
It isn't easy trying to gather people together as a family. And it's not going to be easy to do that in our spiritual family. It takes commitment. It takes valuing those times. It takes sacrifice, really, because you're, you're making a point to be together and to continue to gather together. But it's a priority for us. And in fact, um, Amy and I will be traveling five of the, out of the next eight weekends um, to watch our boys run in different cross-country races because we want to be there with them. We want to share their life with them. We're going to be going to Illinois, Lansing, South Bend, Grand Rapids, to Indiana, back to Illinois, and we're going to end in Vancouver, Washington, chasing our boys around the country. Why? Because they're important to us. We want to be there. We don't want to just, just talk to them on the phone. We want to be there. We want to share those experiences with them. Some of those experiences will be great. Some of them might be hard or they might not be so great. We're going to be in the ups. We're going to be in the downs, whatever it is. We're going to be there. And that's how we need to live life as a family, as a spiritual family. We need to be involved in each other's lives. You can't do that with everybody. You're not supposed to. But you got to have a circle. you got to have a group that you're doing that for. That's why we're doing life groups in October. To just, again, give that opportunity for everybody to reconnect, to reinvest, to, to get plugged in, and to build healthy relationships. And it takes commitment, right? I think our life groups might go like six weeks. So... Um, we're asking you, I'm asking every single person to get involved in a life group in our church. Why? Because of what I've just been saying. We need to have these connections and relationships. But it takes a commitment to say, I will be there once a week on this day at this person's home to invest myself into relationships and to also receive for me to give and receive because I believe in the value of this fellowship, this relationship, this purpose that God has for my life, to do life with others. And so I encourage you to do that. I want every one of us to find a life group that we can do it, or to lead a life group in your home, and to gather together and build each other up and do life together. It takes a commitment. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on, toward love and good deeds, right? How can we encourage each other, cheer each other on, spur one another on to love and good deeds? He goes on to say, not giving up meeting together. Don't stop getting together. Don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What is the day? The day that Jesus returns. Until Jesus returns, the Bible says, keep gathering together in order to encourage each other and to spur one another on, on this journey. If you want to even think of it as a race, on this race, keep encouraging each other, spurring one another on, challenging one another to run this race for God, right? To, to be encouraged to do love and good deeds, to live this life, uh, this godly life in honor of Jesus. And so we need each other's encouragement, correction, cheering, spurring, uh, whatever you want to call it. And the Bible says, do that until Jesus comes back. So uh, last time I checked, Jesus has to come back. So we need to keep encouraging each other. All right. Keep running our race. Keep making a difference for eternity. Now, the third and final one I want to talk about is a healthy church family resolves conflicts. This is a tough one 
because um, we all have experiences of unresolved conflict. In our own natural families, this is a tough thing. When we go through problems, marriages, with children, with extended family members, with friendships, and when we have problems and we have conflicts and we have an argument or we're not on the same page or someone hurts us or lets us down, these are, this, is the, this is the real raw material of life right here. And yet God wants us to be healthy and a healthy family resolves conflicts. We don't bury them. We don't ignore them. We don't run from them. We resolve them. We reconcile those things. Listen, my absolute worst moments in my life are when Amy and I have a unresolved conflict. When I hurt her or she hurt me or we're just arguing about something or we're not on the same page about something, you know, this doesn't happen a lot, but man, when it happens or when it has happened in the past, these are, these are the most miserable moments of my life. I mean, it's horrible. I can't sleep. Uh, I feel terrible. Sometimes I get headaches. My whole soul is just disrupted and in anguish. Um, and it's just everything else, everything else is darkened in my life when it's not going well with my wife, right? You know, the old saying, happy wife, happy life, you know, and it's like that, that has a lot of truth to it because when, when, when it's not going good with my wife, it's not going good with anything for me. It affects every area of my life. And so this is a really important topic. How do we um, resolve conflicts? There's just, and, and then there's times with our kids. I don't know if you have kids, uh, you can probably relate to some of this, but there's times and seasons like our kids, uh, we're on teenager number five right now. <laughs> so we got a lot of years of experience here and a lot of different stories. And there's seasons and times of our children in which you know, we're, we're wondering, who is this child? You know, where did the real child go, go to? Because all of a sudden they changed and there's an attitude or there's a defiance or there's a distance or there's conflicts or there's attitudes and, and it creates a lot of stress on people. And talk about conflict. Sometimes everything that you say as a parent goes out into the air and something weird happens and it gets twisted around. By the time it goes into your child's ear, it comes to them in the opposite, in exactly opposite meaning of what you intended it for. And you're like, what? How, how do you, how did you get that? How did you think that? And so we have these, these real issues that we deal with, right? Conflict. And they're going through, sometimes our kids going through seasons of life where you know, parents aren't cool, or even to be seen with your parents isn't, isn't something that you want to have happen, uh, that parents are stupid or dumb, or they don't understand anything. Have you ever said to one of your kids, I love you, and then not get that back from them? You know, these are really hard moments um, in our natural families. And uh, I've seen some real unhealthy reactions in natural families to conflict. I've seen people throw things. Well, I shouldn't say I've seen it. I've talked with people who have these types of reactions where there's violence, uh, there's shouting, there's anger, there's words, hurtful words, there's passive aggressiveness, there's leaving, there's slamming doors, there's just 
not going to look at it, not going to talk about it, just going to ignore it and not deal with it. And all of these different unhealthy ways of trying to cope with a problem or a conflict do not make the relationship good. They often will end in the breaking of that relationship. I mean, nobody gets married to experience a divorce, right? Nobody wants to see uh, their children and a relationship with a child be, be broken and estranged where you can't even talk to them anymore. Nobody wants that to happen. Nobody even tries to make those things happen, but they happen. They happen because we're not developing healthy patterns of resolving conflict. We just often will just go with our emotions or go with the, maybe the pattern that we've seen from our parents or grandparents growing up. And if they weren't healthy, then our reactions are not going to be healthy either. So how does the Bible tell us to resolve conflict in a healthy way? That's really what we need to look at. What do you do when there's conflict? What you do is you seek a resolution. You dig into it until you get to the root issue. Um, you learn the other person's perspective. You apologize for anything and everything that you can see that you contributed to the problem, uh, what you've done wrong or anything that's been misconceived or misunderstood. And you fight like crazy, not with the person, but you fight to reconcile and repair and restore your relationship. You don't fight with people. You fight to overcome the barriers and the hurt and the different perspectives that are there. What you don't do, this is what you don't do. You don't stay hurt. You don't stay offended. You don't legitimize your actions if they hurt someone. <coughs> Excuse me. You don't stay stubborn or prideful. You don't hold it against someone else. You don't stop talking. You don't leave, run away, ignore it, or cut off the relationship. That's not healthy. You do, don't do those things, but yet people do do those things. But we're talking about being a healthy church family, just like a healthy, natural family. My worst moments in ministry are the same things. It's when I've hurt someone, let someone down, or I find out someone's offended, and I try to reconcile, and they don't want to, or they don't want to talk about it. Or they're just, they, just won't, they just won't release their hurt. I mean, that, those are the worst moments I've had as a pastor, is to see someone leave the church hurt, offended, mad. I just, I mean, I lose sleep over that. My stomach feels sick when I think about those things. I mean, these are real things that happen. And yet, God wants us to somehow overcome these barriers. I'm not a perfect person, you know? I mean, these things happen. Sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes I hurt people. You're not a perfect person. And there isn't, like I said earlier, a perfect church. Yet God has called us to be a healthy family, to reconcile, to forgive, to work these things out. And so I want to look at a couple of scriptures real quick here with this part. Remember, a healthy church family resolves conflicts. So Matthew 18, 7, Jesus says this, and this is in the New King James Version just because it uses the word offense, and I think this is important. It says, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. It's, they happen. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Jesus says, Offense is going to happen. You're going to get offended. Now, I think that it's possible for us to grow 
in maturity and in our relationship with God that we choose to be offended less? I absolutely do believe that. I believe it's a worthy goal of your life to try to become unoffendable. I really believe that, that I can choose um, to become less offended, less offendable, or, um, or even if I am offended, to deal with it quickly, very quickly, so it doesn't have any roots to my soul. But regardless, Jesus makes it clear, offense comes. You will be offended. Someone will let you down. Someone will hurt you. Someone won't invite you to something. Someone will ignore you. Someone will say something mean to you. Or someone will say something that you interpret as mean or rude. Or, I mean, something's going to happen. That, that's not a question. It's not if. Jesus says, when? <laughs> when? What do we do? He gives us some, some instructions. Now, before I go on, the word in Greek for this word offense in the, in the uh, New, New King James, James Version here is, in the original language, scandalon. <laughs> it reminds me of the word scandalous, right? So there's a scandalon that we will all experience, a scandal. You, it's also known as a trap or a snare. Or, uh, and so years ago, or I think it was last year, I had a, a mouse trap for one of our illustrations. That's what it is. It's a trap. The enemy wants to use someone else's um, words or actions to ensnare you, to s- grab you, so that the offense actually begins to spoil your soul. One of the things that I believe is often, almost always, when you become offended, the fact that you're offended and the bitterness and the turmoil within your soul from the offense becomes to have a worse impact on you than the actual act that caused you to be offended. Do you know what I'm saying? Let's just take a real simple example. Let's say that someone uh, uh, said something that hurt your feelings. So they said something that hurt your feelings. Okay, so that's the, that's the, that's the sin. Uh, and yes, it's a sin and it hurt your feelings. But let's say that you get offended by that and you just, it just, you just can't get it out of your head. And then you start to mull it over like we all do and you start to think, man, I, really, I can't stand that prayer. I can't believe they said that. They're such a mean person. And then we start to judge them. And then we start to pile up a, a, a legal case against them. I remember when they did it and that. And who do they think they are? And I can't believe that. They, and then all of a sudden you're getting anger. You're getting bitter. You're building up this wall. And you're cutting them off. You're cutting this whole relationship off. And all of a sudden, the thing that they said, they just said a word or they said something. And that was the, uh, that was the sin. But now, because you're offended... That offense is now hurting you more because that offense is growing to a rage inside of your soul. It might cause you to lose sleep. It might cause you to spread gossip about that person because you're mad at them. It might cause you to cut that relationship off. And now you just lost a friendship or a relationship with someone. And so the offense actually is the real deal that the enemy is trying to do. That's what he's trying to do to you. And so when we get offended... And we get hurt by someone, and then we hold on to that. That's the real poison that's going to harm us and begin to harm other people because that's going to come out of us. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We are not going to do it that way. 
When you get offended, this is what you do, okay? The Bible says that if, if someone has sinned, you go to them privately. You just go to them privately. And you, and, and, and Jesus says, and if they listen, and if they have a humble heart, right? And they're listening, and I'm like, oh. And then, you know, obviously listening means more than just hearing, right? Listening means to respond, okay? And so they're listening, they're like, oh, I am sorry. I, I am so sorry that I did that, 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 that hurt you. That's listening, right? The person would be responding to you. And, and then he says, and if they listen to you, you win them over, right? You get reconciled. Um, they see your perspective. You share your perspective. They share their perspective. You talk it out. You forgive each other. And you're reconciled. And now there's no offense left. There's no toxic uh, toxins in your soul because of that. There's no gossip coming out of you, no hatred coming out of you, no cutting off of a relationship coming out of you. And what the enemy tried to do to entrap you and to snare you, to divide and to break off the, the fellowship is no longer there because now grace and forgiveness and love are there to reconcile. And so that's the first step. And the second step is if you need help and that doesn't work the first time, bring someone else the second time. Still seeking reconciliation, right? You're still looking for restoration, forgiveness for each other. And so the hard truth is these things are going to happen. But we do have an anecdote. Jesus says that the anecdote is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. And he refuses, Jesus refuses to allow division or strife or unresolved conflict in his family. He refuses that. He says, that is not acceptable in my family. Well, we're sons and daughters of God. We are in his family. And he wants and demands forgiveness and unity. There's a, um, a story that uh, Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 18. Um, and then after that story of forgiveness, or just before that, Peter asked this question. And he said, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Lord, how many times do I let this person off the hook? How many times do I forgive that person if they keep offending me, if they're doing things that are hurting me? And, and should I do it seven times? Which Peter thought he was being very generous because the actual uh, teaching of the day was three. <laughs> three times. So he's more than doubling it. He's like, Jesus, how about seven? Are you impressed with that? Seven times. And Jesus, of course, answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or in another translation, 70 times seven times. 490 times, right? And Jesus is not really putting a number to it. He's saying unlimited because forgiveness is actually not for the person who has harmed you. It's for your healing to set you free from the, the soul toxins and the anger and the bitterness and all the stuff that's going to come out of that. Forgiveness isn't really for the other person. It is how we heal from hurt. It's for me. Jesus says you, there's an unlimited number of times to forgive because every time you get hurt, the only way you can heal is to forgive. I hope you're hearing me this. I really hope you're hearing this. The means by which God has provided for you to heal from hurt is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. And then he goes on to tell a story. You can read it on your own in Matthew 18. And at the conclusion of the story, 
It's a parable. Jesus says this, Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I've canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And Jesus concluded and said, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. In other words, you and I have been forgiven so much by God himself, by Jesus. He paid for my sin. He paid for your sin with his blood. That because of that forgiveness and because he is our Lord and Savior and he's the head of the family, he says, now you must forgive your brother or sister if they sin against you because I have forgiven you. And there is no exception. And if you don't, then the Bible says you will be tortured. That unforgiveness will torture you. That bitterness and anger will rage in your soul. And it will do more damage to you than the actual offense. And so that's why Jesus says, no, we're not doing that. We are going to live as a family in unity. In unity. Jesus leaves no room for unforgiveness in this family. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're at church and you're coming to worship God, and he says, and you're at the altar and you're going to give your offering, and there at that moment you remember that a brother or a sister has something against you, that there's an offense, that there's a rift, that there's a problem. Jesus says, leave your gift, stop what you're doing, and go... And be reconciled to them. Then come back and offer your gift to God. Wow. That's how important this is to him, to Jesus, to his family. I just got a couple thoughts to share with you about this, okay? Just a few thoughts on approaching offense. Because we all deal with this. It's a hard topic. And we have to choose to trust in Jesus by forgiving one another and choosing to reconcile and choosing to learn from those mistakes on both, both sides. But here's a couple thoughts I just want to throw out to you. Number one, not everything is worth mentioning, right? Not everything's a big deal. There needs to be um, some grace in all of our lives with one another. You can't mention everything that your spouse does wrong to you, every little thing that bothers you. That's going to be hard. That's going to be a really hard life. I mean, there's got to be some grace, Right? There's got to be some things that, that you just deal with internally and say, you know what? I, I forgive them. I'm not even going to make an, a big deal about this one. I don't need to go to them and have this big drawn out thing and tell them how much they're bothering me by doing this. Listen, there's got to be some grace. Not everything is worth mentioning. Right? Don't sweat the little things. Right? And so a lot of our offenses, though, to be honest, come from our own internal hurts, struggles, and perspectives. So much of what we are being offended by in other people are unintentional things that they're doing or not doing, but they trigger us because we got some insecurities, because we've got some unsettled issues. And so they're not even trying to offend us. And so when those things are the case, it's not really great to go to that person and tell them how much you hurt them. 
That's just exposing your own insecurities and your own unhealed wounds. What do you do with that stuff? You take it to God. You say, God, why am I so easily offended in this area? God, why did my button get pushed? Why am I triggered? Lord, what am I doing? What's going on in my heart? Lord, what do you want to heal in me? What do you want to heal in me? God wants to heal your soul. Your soul needs, is wounded. It needs to be healed. It needs to be set free. And there's some deep wounds in many of us. So we need to go to celebrate recovery. We need to go to a life group. We need to have relationships where we can talk these things out through people. If you feel like you're always being offended by everybody, that's probably a sign that there's some unhealed hurts in your own soul because nobody's trying to offend anybody on purpose here. And so if you're always being offended, you need to start looking on the inside first, okay? So not everything's worth mentioning. In fact, everything that you feel like you've got a button push or you're triggered, everything is worth evaluating with the Holy Spirit. Everything is worth taking to God, saying, God, why do I feel this way? Why did that comment hurt me? Why did they, why did they, uh, why when this person let me down, did I, do I feel so depressed? Or do I feel for, so sad? Or I feel rejected? Why, why is this, Lord? What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to heal? Show me, God, how to be made whole, right? So that's the first thought I want to share with you. Second one is, let's assume the best about one another. Let's give the benefit of the doubt to others. Sometimes we are really good at filling in all the blanks. We may see something or hear something or whatever, and then we assume and we begin to fill in the blanks of the motives of that person in their life <laughs> toward ourselves. Well, they just don't like me. Well, they just don't care about people. Or they're, they're just too full of themselves because they didn't notice me or whatever. And we just start to fill in all these blanks. And we almost always are assuming the, the worst of the other person when we get offended. But I want you to flip that around. Let's just flip it around and let's just assume the best and give people the benefit of the doubt, right? What if we did that? How much better would our relationships be and how much less of energy would we spend on the inside trying to assign everybody the very worst motive that we can come up with because we're mad? The third thing I want to challenge you with is to be humble. And to don't think too highly of yourself. To be humble. You know, honestly, the, the, the world doesn't revolve around me. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. But we are part of the family of God. Yes, we're loved. I'm not trying to say don't think anything of yourself. I'm not saying that. I'm saying just be humble and realize that we are part of God's family. And that everything in this universe doesn't have to go according to our plan. And we just need to remember that God is in control. I can trust in God. I can release my cares and my concerns to Him. But the last thing I want to challenge you to do is trust Jesus in others. Trust that Jesus is at work in the people's lives around you. Listen, if you've ever tried to fix anybody, you know how frustrating that could be. We can't fix anyone. Uh, we can't even fix ourselves. Now, it's good to try. <laughs> it's good to try to fix yourself. But how you fix yourself is you actually take it to God 
and you let God do the work in you. That's how you do that, okay? And that's what one of my first points was. And so, but now what I'm talking about is let's give the benefit of the doubt and let's trust that Jesus is at work in the people around us and pray for them and look for Jesus in them because no one's perfect, but God is at work in all of our hearts. And I'm confident that Jesus can touch my brother's heart, touch my sister's heart, change them. He can transform them. He can finish what he started. So as I summarize this message today, here's what I want you to do. I want you uh, to be in communication with your family, your church family. I want you to share life with others, okay? Secondly, I want you to be in relationship with your family. I want you to do life with others. And thirdly, this last point, I want you to forgive and reconcile with your family. When you get offended... Go to that person privately, talk it out, forgive, be reconciled. And if you need help, take someone with you. This is what Jesus' prayer for us as a family is. In John chapter 17, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's Jesus' prayer for his family, for you and for me, that we would be in him, he's in the Father, and we are at one, complete unity. That's his prayer. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this opportunity to talk about our family today and your design for us to do life together, to share life together, and to grow in unity together. And Lord, I just pray for uh, my, my brother, my sister listening today, watching this today. Lord, that you'd give them the courage and the inspiration to forgive right now anyone that they have hurt against or that has been hurting them. I pray that you just help them to choose to trust in you, to forgive and release and to be reconciled to anyone in the family, anyone uh, that they have a rift with or bitterness towards or have been hurt by. Lord, that is the only way for us to heal, and that's what you've called us to do. I pray for our family, our real-life family, God, that you'll help us grow stronger together, closer together, have more support for one another, and help us to continue to forgive and reconcile and grow together into the family that is experiencing your complete unity, your perfect unity, so that we can also reflect to this world your character, your love, your nature, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now let me bless you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up His countenance upon you 
and give you peace in his name. Amen. God bless you.